it's not this kitchen sink where we've got 25% negative sentiment about our brand. It's what are the small breadcrumbs that we can start to leave in our communications that help people to process information more easily and actually get them to the end goal of converting into a customer. Welcome to the Social Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Sampofo. On today's show, we talk with Dr. Gillian Nay. As the UK's first doctor of social media, Gillian brings together the disciplines of social data analysis with behavioural science to help marketers rely less on hunches and more on developing metrics that give insight on unconscious consumer behaviour. You should listen to this show if you want to understand how social data can help uncover deep insights into consumer behaviour, how machine intelligence and AI will revolutionise approaches to consumer intelligence, and also how social intelligence can help to improve products and business challenges. But first of all, welcome to the Social Intelligence Podcast. In this series, we bring together the best teachers and thought leaders to teach you how the social intelligence landscape is radically changing business and our future. Okay, enjoy the show with Dr. Gillian Nay. So Gillian, thanks so much for being a part of the show. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you more and to find out, find out your thoughts and your perspectives on social intelligence and sharing that with the world. So welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here, Lawrence. So Gillian, I'm wondering if you can give the audience a little bit more of a sense of yourself and just introduce us not only to your way of thinking, but how did you get there and what made you really want to focus on social intelligence and behavioural science? Um, so I'm, I'm the UK's first doctor of social media and my PhD is in social media and consumer behaviour. So I, growing up, I never, ever knew what I wanted to do. And I went to, eventually went to university. Um, I was more of a mature student at 21 and went to university and studied my degree and at the end of it I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Nothing really ignited my passion Um, and then it turned out that I was actually quite good at university um, and the department wanted me to stay and do a PhD. So because I wasn't really that interested in anything I had no clue what that would be and I told them that if I got a first class honours degree then I would stay on. So I did get a first, and which was good. Um, and that summer, uh, no, it must have been a little while after, I took a year in between my finishing my degree and starting my PhD. And in between that time, I worked for a group of researchers who were un- just trying to understand volunteer voice from mega sporting events. So they had events like the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games and the, the World Cup. What I didn't know then was is that it's up to each hostessy and how they and how they advertise, attract, and um, and train these volunteers and the different types of jobs and things that they have to do. So the researchers that I were working with wanted to create a unified model that could be lifted from place to place to try and standardise that experience. Um, so my role was to figure out, understand volunteer voice. So at that time, that was in 2007, and there was no way that I could go out to Beijing and things because there was no budget for that. So we started to use forums and blogs and what was social media then. Obviously, it was very early. 
And I kind of got hooked on that. So while everyone was saying, you need to be here, it's the perfect communications channel, come, 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 all the people are here. I was taking in all of that data and all of those conversations and making sense of them, albeit within that kind of small niche that we started to look in. So this, because I became so hooked on it, it's like voyeurism almost. And you've got no idea the types of stuff that people share about their experiences and that. Um, so I put in my, so I decided that I wanted to make that the focus of my PhD. Um, and we looked at, oh, well, my PhD focused on um, the, how we evaluate the credibility or the influence of the content that we find online and how that impacts a purchase decision. So that was, it was great, but with it being kind of very early on, there a lot of laughter <laughs> round about my PhD. Nobody got it, or my, my, at least my supervisors got it. So that was the main thing. And then eventually it kind of kicked around and more people started to become aware of the data and the power of the data and things. So um, after my PhD, I, I then went to an agency and I was a consultant for them to help them build a model for social ROI. And after that, I decided then um, that I wanted to do my own thing and I've been doing consulting ever since and launched my own company, um, DRGN, in 2016 and I've never looked back. But I think um, I think also just pushing through all of the... Um all of the negativity and the naysayers, you know, people who would have been, who would have erred on the side of, no, 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 Gillian, you need to go to Beijing and you need to actually interview people. Um, you know, kind of pushing through all of that and seeing the value in a, a new data source, basically. Um, that must have, that must be challenging. Okay, do you know, the re- it was the researchers really that I have been working with said that this is the way that we need to do it. And I said, that's fine. And I was like, okay, we'll we'll see what happens. I've got no idea what's going to happen. And it just happened to be the right thing, um, which was fantastic. Kind of after that point, it was when all the people were like, no, I don't know. Are you really a PhD student? Because I'm not a typical academic. Um, And um, and I just had to keep on on going. A friend of mine I had kind of lost touch with a few years before I started my PhD, he ended up working within social media and then he found out what I was doing with my PhD and he's like, why are you doing that kind of thing? And um, and then it just kind of turned into something a lot bigger. So everybody questioned it, but I just had to keep on going. I knew it was going to be right at some point. So, um, <clears throat> so Gillian, one of the things that you talk about a lot in your work is that... Um, is that basically you talk about making social media intelligence or social data intelligence actionable. Um, and this is something that a lot of companies and a lot of agencies would talk about that, you know, making social media intelligence actionable and how it's a priority for them. Mm-hmm. But it's all that, that phrase, it's all quite vague and it's quite inexact. So I'm wondering, like, what's your actual perspective on making social media intelligence um, actionable? So this is a big this is a big bugbear and I suppose what happened when I started out as well as I was a bit I probably fell fell into this trap as well and we would go in and analyse data and just see what we would find out you find out stuff but it's those nice to know 
um, or that's good or that's common sense insights. And I always say that they're career killers because if someone says that's nice or that's interesting, I'm like, okay, what's wrong with it? How do we make it better? Um, so I, I have this terminology that I say a kitchen sink analysis. And if you're going in and you're not really knowing what you're doing or what the, what's the purpose of the research and what it is that you want to be able to do with it at the end, then you kind of end up falling into this kitchen sink analysis and you're just throwing everything at it with the hopes that some of the output will stick. And we tend to see that this is why you're getting 50 page reports and you've got like a bunch of nice, pretty visuals, but there's not, not that much you can actually do with that. It, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult situation because I think that I use all of these tools as well and they're fantastic when you get to be able to use them and then you know how to interpret the data. So you can't press a button on these tools and it's not going to give you insight. You need a human to be able to interpret what's happening. And I think that a lot of it is missing and people talk about actionable insights, but they don't really quite know what that is. And for us, it starts off with kind of what is the purpose of the research and what do you want to be able to do with it? And then we break everything down after that point. That's fantastic. And then because I'm really interested about this bringing together of, you know, two huge disciplines like, you know, behavioral science and then also the whole emerging field of social data intelligence. So how do those two fields come together meaningfully? So it took me a while to get this. And there was a few, I, I had most of 2016 off to kind of reassess what I was doing with my career and the direction that I wanted to go in. And I started just to read lots of different books about behaviour and neuroscience and things. And it wasn't until I started to read, I'm trying to think of the names of them now. Um, it was a book called, by Thomas Gad, and it was called Customer Experience Branding. And then I think it's Robert Heath, um, Seducing the Subconscious. And there was a book on, a couple of books on neuroscience that I read as well. And when I was reading it in terms of how the brain processes information, processes information, I was like, this is what this data is supposed to tell us. It's not this kitchen sink where we've got 25% negative sentiment about our brand. It's what are the small breadcrumbs that we can start to leave in our communications that help people to process information more easily and actually get them to the end goal of converting into a customer. Um, so that's kind of where where I started with that. Um, I see a few of the tools, they're starting to have a look at kind of different things in respects to different product attributes and things like that when they're, um, when they're searching in social data. So my ways may be slightly different because my end goal is to understand how people make decisions. And we use social data for that, whereas other people are, are maybe a bit more broad. So I'm wondering, Gillian, with you being the first doctor of social media in the UK, were you also the first person to bring together behavioural science and social media intelligence? I have no idea, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> um, I haven't, I've not really seen anybody do it the way that we do it. Um, and I spent quite a long time, well, in 2016, working out, different metrics so I think what happens when you go into the tools is you, you'll be able to see a share of voice and your buzz and things pretty easily 
some of them you, they, you then can create your own segments and find out kind of what volumes are within that and things but what I wanted to do because we're really trying to find out about behavior and how people make decisions is I went back into you know, all, all of my theories and right the way back from even when I started first at uni and things about okay so kind of customer decision making and we're like so we're looking at things like decision making heuristics we're looking at things like unmet needs attention triggers purchase drivers and we measure those um I've not really seen many people do it that way there's a few of the tools now have some automated in terms of purchase drivers and things and um purchase intent I've not seen many people do the work the way that we do it. Some of the tools have some automated um, elements, metrics that pro that look at things like purchase intent and purchase drivers. Um, but I've not really seen anyone kind of start looking at those decision-making heuristics or anything like that. I think everything that you're talking about there, particularly the um, the point about um, decision heuristics, is absolutely fascinating. But could you give us an unbranded example of exactly how this works in practice? Because I think that would be really important for the audience. Yeah, so it's I have an ebook coming out um, that we've been working on just to to try to put into context because it's going to be quite difficult for people to grasp what it is when you're talking about it. But when they when they see it and understand the story and about why it works this way, it's a lot e it's a lot easier to convey. So I've written an ebook, and this ebook is it's really about selling innovation. Um, and we look at a case study round about mattresses in a box. Um, but these mattresses, they come and they're in a smaller box and you open them out and the mattresses then fold out and they, they pump up. Um, but what we what we've seen was they started chasing us across Facebook and all the different and Instagram and everywhere on social media. Um, so we started to have a, a look at them in terms of how they're sold. And there is a lot, it's a very crowded marketplace. And they tend to sell on the technology that's within the mattress. But I was like, that's not the right, that's not how you sell that. Does anybody care about all of that? So we look, went and took six of our metrics to understand a bit more about what it is, how people purchase a mattress and the information that they're looking for. So. Yeah, so we took six of our we took six of our metrics, and what we looked for was the psycho psychological reason for purchase, the intrinsic and extrinsic purchase drivers, the customers' unmet needs, their the customers' anchor, the customers' barriers to purchase, and also their decision-making heuristics. And then from that, we were then be able to find out kind of how it is the customer makes a decision why it is that they need to purchase it and what kind of what drives that purchase. Um, and then how it is, because what happens is when we meet something, particularly something new like an innovation like this, is we ha we all in our brains go back to try to make it fit into a scheme that we've already got in there, which is why when you see a mattress in a box, everybody's brain just automatically goes to put in a big cardboard box around the mattress that they've got. Um, so we wanted to kind of understand more about that. So in terms of then, we then use that, we then use the insights from this to go, okay, so they're having difficulty kind of getting their head around about the fact that this thing comes in a box and it's got springs in it and it's full of foam and like, how on earth does that work? So we can then begin to help brands shape content within that to help kind of educate and nudge the behaviour. In terms of the barriers to purchase, 
we find a lot of the time that the websites, because they're, they're sold online, um, I think one of the suppliers is in John Lewis, but I don't think there's there's one in Harrods, I believe, um, but most of the majority of them are online sales. Um, and they focus very much on the technology that's gone into building the mattress. But when we look at it, that's not something that people exactly care about that much. And in fact, the fact that these mattresses are made out of foam is actually a barrier to purchase. Because foam mattresses have been about for a while, people's, because they're going back to the associations that they already have, their association is that it's going to be too warm and it's, it's going to smell because of their experiences of foam mattresses from before. So we need to start then, we use this insight to within communications to then build, break down those associations and build new ones. Um, one of the big things that came through from that study was that a lot of the a lot of the advertisement for the, these mattresses, the mattress never seems to be on a bed. It always seems to be on a floor. And there was a lot of people coming through and saying that they didn't want to get one because they didn't want to sleep on the floor. So you can see from the, their advertising, and because there's, they're doing a lot of advertising, that they're actually now beginning to have new associations with these, with these mattresses and the fact that they don't go on a normal bed, you sleep on the floor which is not how people like to sleep. So again, there's another barrier, which is kind of non-conscious that's coming through there. This is really, really interesting, Gillian. And I think, and I think for me, <clears throat> um, because my next question was going to be about um, credibility, that, um, you know, again, from a lot of the articles I would read, um, social intelligence, sometimes it loses credibility in the eyes of business. But I'm guessing that, um, that this approach that you're talking about now um, by using social data to uncover non-conscious thought and then to change associations, um, this go this does much to to change um, to, to change the I guess those credibility gaps that um, senior leaders might have. Yeah, definitely. I think it's I kind of get why the, there's a credibility issue, and it's something that personally I'm trying to work and to resolve. It, what happened in the start was is people just measured the easy to measure things. So you had your reach and your number of followers and things like that. And that's what was going back. And that really wasn't hitting the spot. So because of that early experience with what social data could do, it, the, it's put people off a little bit. Um, and it takes a while for you to get a bit of credibility. Um, it's certainly something that I'm aware of. And we have to work quite hard with some clients in the start um, to, to get the credibility back for it. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see, just as a very quick aside, but where do you see um, senior decision makers um, kind of falling towards? Like, do you, if you say that there's a credibility gap in terms of with social data, where do you see them leaning towards to get those rich consumer insights? I, so they would go back to traditional research. Um, I think neuromarketing is coming out quite a lot now as well. Um, which is certainly something we have partners within there. So we're testing, again, a lot of our theories um, to see that if one if we put one thing in, it's going to have more, more impact on the brain. So we're looking for brain-friendly communication in the work that we do. Um, I think that they would tend to go to traditional research. We do some work with a financial institution and they really love the stuff that we have done. And we've actually been able to confirm or deny a few of the assumptions that they had made about their audience and how people purchase within their within their sphere, um, which was which was great. And 
but when we do things like brand tracking they still want a traditional element to that because that's how it's always been done just now so you kind of you have to it's not replacing it's enhancing in certain in certain ways there's there's been other things that we've done and we can only take the research so far because you have to use naturally occurring conversation. So there was one instance where we were working with a sponsor and could find that maybe people didn't know that they didn't recognise the sponsorship, but they were buying that particular sponsor's brand, but they were unaware of it. So it was completely non-conscious. So then that had to then be wrapped into more traditional research to try and unpick why that was happening. Um, so because of the limitations in certain respects, um, people are still a little bit weary. So Gillian, I know that you're in the midst of creating this um, amazing community for social intelligence professionals. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit more about that and how that all works. Because communities like that are definitely a bit thin on the ground. Uh, yes, they are a bit thin on the ground, and that's exactly why I wanted to create one. What I had been finding was that people that I spoke to who who work with social data, and they could even work in very large companies, they tend to be maybe one or two people within the whole of the organisation that seem to work with social data. And they can feel a little bit isolated, and sometimes they don't have anybody to talk to about it or to ask questions. And everyone's going and they're doing their work and they're getting good feedback from the reporting, but they kind of have an inner desire that they know there's more that they can do. And that's generally why people start talking to me anyway. And what I thought would be a great thing to do is just to be able to bring all those people into the one place so they can not only have access to me, but they can network with each other. So we have the the community is in two parts there's one part where there's a forum where you can get access to your peers um, access to my team other experts in the area and also myself and then there's also a membership site where we do training once a month and we also do a live call once a month with myself as well um, so you're getting quite a lot for your um, within the community so Gillian unfortunately we've come to the end where can people find out more about you and your work and connect with you on me, um, on my website, it's drgillianney.com, um, and I've got a really good um, blog on there as well. That's great. Well, Gillian, thanks so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much for having me.